Hello, and welcome to DigiDay's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the DigiDay podcast examining the disruption in the digital media space from the 1990s to the current day. My name is Ronan Shields, and I work on the reporting desk here at DigiDay. In the last episode, we spoke with Brian O'Kelly about his insights on the early days of the ad tech sector as large players such as Google and Yahoo started to dominate. However, there was something of a middle era as investors' appetite for the space waned in the wake of the dot-com crash and the sector entered an era of survival of the fittest. Joining us today to talk over this period is Markitecture's Ari Paparo, he can describe how investment began to eventually flow back into the space and programmatic began to eat up the entire industry, as well as how it went through a period of more consolidation from the mid-2010s onwards. Ari gained a reputation as one of the biggest influencers in the sector, having helped spur DoubleClick towards its 2007 sale to Google for $3.1 billion dollars and then later joining AppNexus in the early 2010s. Thank you for joining us, Ari. Thanks for having me, Roman. So we have, we're here to talk about the history of ad tech uh, at time that kind of takes in Ari's career, but with a particular focus on the early days that uh, even predate even my experience of covering this space. So I guess we're here to talk about the 2000s, and the rise of the ad network. And then we also obviously go into the preceding decade and a little bit up to the more contemporary period. Ari, I was just looking back and I noticed how uh, the IAB slash PWC annual survey of internet advertising revenue uh, for the year 2000 uh, said there was $8.2 billion, which feels... um, small in comparison to today, Um, although the growth rates subsequently kind of plateaued in the following sort of four to five years, just by the looks of things, looking at the hockey stick. Um, I was just wondering, based on your own observations of that time, do you think this sort of comparative plateau has anything to do with the dot-com bubble? Or can you just tell us a little bit, what was the what was the climate like at that time in the in ad tech? Absolutely. The digital advertising business in the late 90s, 98, 99, um, was overwhelmingly a bubble where venture capital was going into new digital companies and those companies were spending that venture capital on advertising and business development deals with other digital companies. Uh, So the flow of money was artificial and was being propped up by a lot of metrics that weren't actually tied to real economic activities. Of course, there was real advertising and major brands were seeing people, especially young people, spend time online. But it wasn't nearly the growth engine the way that that venture capital money was. Uh, I At the time, I had a startup called Blink.com, and we were really part of that. We had raised $13 million, and we were spending that money in foolish ways to acquire <laughs> customers, and then we would advertise those customers with other advertisements from ad networks like DoubleClick Sonar Network, which is, you know, a real deep cut from back then. Uh, so when the dot-com bubble burst in 2001, um, a lot of the advertising money dried up, really an enormous amount of the advertising money, and the ad networks that still existed, like DoubleClick, which eventually got sold to L90 mm. um, and 24-7, 
they all had huge declines in volume and pricing. And it was possible to buy run-of-network advertising on one of these uh, networks for as low as 25-cent CPMs. Um, so in aggregate, you saw the bubble burst and the advertising business, digital advertising business, flatten through the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And uh, who were the big, you, you just mentioned a few names, but who were the big power players at this time? You, you mentioned DoubleClick, a company that was founded in uh, 1996, going by my own desk research, and uh, some a company that we'll, uh, we'll come on to in much greater detail to cover your time there. Um, but who were the other big power players? Sure. In the early 2000s, like 2001, 2002, search advertising really wasn't a big thing. Google didn't exist yet. Uh, There was some search advertising through Yahoo and AOL, but it really was nothing like what we think of as AdSense and AdWords nowadays. The ad network business uh, had a couple of players. DoubleClick had an ad network back then. They sold it off at some point in the early 2000s to a company called L90. Uh, and 24-7, which was DoubleClick's major rival in the ad-serving game, also had a pretty large ad network. And um, I think right around then, and partially because of the dot-com bust, a bunch of other ad networks got founded uh, in the environment of very low pricing and kind of some advances in technology. There was an opportunity. So it was in those early 2000s that advertising.com got started down in Baltimore, who was a really important company. Mm. Um, as well as companies like Blue Lithium and uh, InterClick and a bunch of others. So those were all products of the early 2000s. And I personally believe that a part of the reason they were founded was because there was so much inventory at such low prices that they could experiment and learn with data-driven and uh, algorithmically driven ad network capabilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned advertising.com as a uh, very influential company of the time, um, a brand that might be not so familiar to newer listeners to the space. Could you uh, just explain a little bit as to why that one company it was uh, quite quite so influential? It's, it's a name that, because obviously this is a little bit before my time covering the space, but it's a name that I hear a lot, of, comes up a lot. Right. So the transition that happened over and across the dot-com bust was a movement from selling advertising more or less the same way magazines sold ads. That's where the phrase CPM comes from. It's a magazine term. And the thought that there'd be slots on pages that you sold and that uh, the role of an ad network was mostly just to aggregate those spots to make it easier to buy. And then there was a transition, and Advertiser.com was one of the leaders of this, to use data and algorithms to effectively arbitrage what the advertisers wanted versus what the publishers wanted. Uh, And let me explain that for a second. So what publishers want is money, full stop. That's all they care about. But advertisers want a lot of different things. Advertisers want people to download their app or they want advertisers to fill in, consumers to fill in a form or to buy something. CPI, CPA, CPC, all those pricing models. And Advertising.com effectively created an engine, a technical engine, that would give the advertisers whatever they wanted at the price they wanted uh, using algorithms and data and then pay the publishers the minimum amount that the publishers would accept to keep the tags on the page. And between those two was an enormous spread. And Advertising.com got very good at keeping that spread as large as possible and profiting from it. Eventually, they were so successful, they were sold to AOL for, I believe, $500 million, which was quite a big sum in that era. 
So Ari, obviously this was a period of uh, a lot of speculation in the space and a lot of new money was coming in from VCs, et cetera, et cetera. But how acquisitive were the more strategic players uh, like say an AOL or a Google or even more traditional media companies such as uh, traditional print legacy players? I think in the aftermath of the dot-com bust, there was very little appetite to start new companies. And ironically, some of the best companies we know, including Google, were created right around then. Uh, so it was it was a classic instance of the trough of disillusionment where the first, first group of dot-com companies just crashed and burned so hard that it was hard to raise money for new ones. Um, and I think that the effect of that was that many of the companies built in the early 2000s were very commercially oriented. They were making money right away, like the ad network companies um, or some of the uh, rich media companies. That was a, something I was very involved with. And many of the companies like iBlaster and Point Roll were all created in the early 2000s uh, because they were pretty fast to revenue. They were effectively selling campaigns and making money almost immediately. Uh, so the corporate investment wasn't there except to scoop up the remnants of dot-coms that might have been available, and VC was definitely not there. Um, yet a bunch of companies were founded in that, and they really were trendsetters, I think, in the late 2000s. By the time we got to the era of programmatic that we'll talk about in a bit, those companies that had been founded in the early to mid-2000s largely were the innovators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, you, you mentioned the rise of the ad networks. Uh, could you say who the big ad networks were? And um, how did they disrupt uh, the previous models of doing business the same way as uh, ads results in the offline era, I guess you'd say? Yeah, in the 2000s, there were, the 2000s were really the time of the ad networks where they became very important. Uh, they were companies like L90, Advertising.com, Blue Lithium, InterClick, I'm probably missing some, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, Drive PM, which was owned by another DoubleClick rival, um, and a bunch of others. And they all basically had the same idea, which was to take publisher inventory, apply algorithms and data to it, and provide advertisers with results. And I think they were very important at the time because at after the dot-com bust, there was a flight to quality on the advertiser side. So th to the extent that mainstream advertisers like auto and CPG, et cetera, still wanted to spend money in digital, they wanted to spend money really on a limited number of the highest quality properties. At the time, there was this concept that's going to sound crazy to younger listeners <laughs> called the big three. Everyone talked about the big three. And the big three were AOL, Yahoo, and MSN. And those, the big three were, the, were on every media plan because they were so big, you had to buy them. But then it dropped off very precipitously after the big three. And maybe there was a little CBS, a little ESPN, and a little bit of Fox. But the broad group of, ad, of publishers that we currently can buy through programmatic pipes were not nearly as activated back then. And more likely, you were going to go to an ad network to reach those companies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, hard times have changed from uh, the days of the big three, right? Uh, the big three, <laughs> yep. Okay, so I guess would it be fair to say then that the rise of the ad networks was, was a way for smaller, maybe more longer tail companies or companies that weren't in that initial first wave of innovation to um, to to 
to operationalize and monetize uh, their digital inventory. Would that be a fair assessment? On the publisher side, certainly. If you were not in the top 10 publishers, you had to rely pretty heavily on ad networks. On the advertiser side, it's important to realize that the ad networks played a key role in delivering performance. Before programmatic, the buy side had no way of delivering performance itself. They had to just hand over money to the sell side to deliver the performance. And performance requires scale. Mm -hmm. Other than the big three, there were very few publishers large enough to do anything on a performance basis. So the ad networks had to play that role. Got you. And um, you mentioned how a lot of these companies were real innovators. How well understood do you think the... Uh, the business practices were of how these companies actually made money. You mentioned the arbitraging, et cetera, et cetera. How well understood outside of the sort of core people making this happen was this in, uh, you know, in, in legacy businesses? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there was a suspicion that there were margins at these companies that normal publishers can only dream about. <laughs> and... <laughs> stories would come out of Baltimore, which was the headquarters of advertising.com, about uh, trade rooms filled with, you know, young, excitable people who are pressing buttons and making money. Uh, it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit like Wolf of Wall Street style. Um, and I think that um, it was only when some of these companies either were acquired or went public uh, that people started getting access to the financials and started asking questions about why they should be paying so much for their performance or why they should be getting such small checks on the sell side when the middleman was taking 50, 60% gross margins. Okay. So Ari, it was around about this time in the mid 2000s that you started your career at DoubleClick, a period of time that uh, you've been on record as describing a, a, a turnaround era. Could you just talk talk to us a little bit about that time? Because obviously this was an era that also took in their sale to Google, which is you know arguably the most sort of uh, monumental uh, deal in uh, acquisition in ad tech history. But uh, let's just take it one step at a time. Uh, this the, your your entry to double click and the entry into a sort of ad tech proper, I guess. Sure. DoubleClick had an interesting history because they were the high flyer during the first wave before the dot-com bust. They had raised a lot of money, uh, including a pretty big secondary debt offering. And so when the dot-com bust happened, it was terrible for their business. I've heard stories that 80% of the customers of DoubleClick went out of business, wow. which is just a crazy number. Wow. It's insane. <laughs> but they had so much cash that they were never in danger. So what they did in the early 2000s, which may have seemed smart at the time, but in retrospect was not smart at all, was <laughs> first of all, they sold their ad network to L90. I mentioned that a couple of times. Mm. So they were no longer transacting in media. They were only selling tech. Um, and it turns out that transacting in media is a really good way to grow in ad tech, uh, as we've seen over and over again. Um, so they, they got rid of their transaction business, and then they also diversified to a whole bunch of other businesses, including email and uh, campaign management and all these related sort of martech -y kind of businesses. So I joined in July 20, 2004. So I'm coming up on my 20th anniversary uh, being an ad tech. Congratulations. Uh, yes. And, I, and, you know, it was kind of a really good coincidence that a bunch of other uh, relatively young, smart people joined around the same time. Names like Jason Bigler and Jonathan Bellick, who I've had on my podcast. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
And I won't say that we instantly turned it around. I think a lot of that credit goes to the fact that the company was taken private and can make some hard decisions. But at the time I joined, it really was quite a mess. It was a sprawling company with lots of products that were subscale, didn't work very well. And then a core product, the ad serving product, which was very profitable and very successful, but had not been invested in technically in many years. So the company put itself up for sale as a as a public company. It was still traded on the stock market. They mm-hmm. ran a process. Uh, Google apparently bid on it, but bid very low during oh, that okay. period of time. Interesting. Well, it was a mess, so it was a real fixer-upper. And <laughs> um, it was taken private by the private equity firm Hellman & Friedman out of San Francisco. And the CEO job was given to a guy named David Rosenblatt, who a lot of people have a lot of respect for, including myself. And David Rosenblatt very quickly turned it around. He sold off all the mail assets right away and made a lot of money on them. He shut down a bunch of businesses that were losing money, including uh, some European businesses that were just sinkholes of money. He invested in the things that were working, like ad serving and rich media, which is what I was working on at the time. So ad, video ads, flash ads, things like that. And the company became quite profitable and fast growing and had no baggage. So within about 18 months, it was sold to Google for roughly 10 times the amount that Hellman and Freeman had paid for it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that the fact that uh, th- that that was such a big deal, it was $3.1 billion, and right. uh, I think it, the deal was going by the research I did, the deal was first announced in 2007, but it wasn't actually until the following calendar year. That was was that due to like the growing scrutiny of governments or stuff like that or those kind of activities or was it just simply a deal? Yeah, well, the year delay was because of a review by the FTC. So, or it might have been the DOJ. I can't remember which had jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's pretty natural that that sort of deal would require a bit more review. Uh, Double clicks, ad servers had quite large market share. Not even not as large as they do now. But <laughs> DFP was by far the leading publisher ad server. DFA, which I was running at the time, was uh, by far the number one buy side ad server. Uh, and Google obviously had a search monopoly, and so there were some questions about how it all fit together, and so they did the more ex- extended review. And in the end, and this is kind of one of the key interesting things that ha- has happened in ad tech, the government didn't seem to see the point of the merger as being able to allow Google to train its sites on the display market. And instead, the government's only complaint or the government's only restriction as part of the deal was that DoubleClick had to divest its Performix search business, which was a uh, search agency, more or less, for lack of a better word. And and DoubleClick was thrilled to get rid of that. It was so <laughs> unstrategic. It had nothing to do with the deal. And it was the only thing the government had any complaint about. So pretty big whiff on the government's part in terms of its oversight. I'm not saying the deal should have been blocked. Thank God it wasn't blocked. I, I really enjoyed the fact that it went through. But the government really missed, missed the forest for the trees on that one. Got it, got it. Well, we can get into that a little bit later about the increasing interest of government in the industry as a whole. Um, so talk us through the transition from DoubleClick to Google. We have um, 
a company that is pretty famous in uh, Silicon Alley, which I believe is kind of the New York equivalent of uh, Silicon Valley up there on the West Coast. Um, was there uh, much of a was there much of a sort of difference in culture mindset? Can you just talk us through that transition from uh, let's say let's just call it a niche company to again a company that is like a household name, universally recognizable in Google? Sure, there was pretty radically different approaches to business and technology between DoubleClick and Google, and it was pretty clear from the beginning that Google was going to win because Google was 20 times the size and they were the acquirers and they were the hot young company and DoubleClick was sort of this old stalwart. But, and and thankfully, um, enough there was enough talent and drive among the DoubleClick teams to adopt the Google culture and to help them get better at what they needed to get better at. And in a, in a sense infect their culture with a little bit of the East Coast business-oriented double-click DNA. And what I mean by that is that the Google people at the time were just the most, like, stereotypically tech-first anti-business people you could imagine. <laughs> they would say things like, it, they would say things like, and, and I think Larry and Sergey have said, have said this, like advertising is a form of search, not search advertising, but all advertising, because we're looking for products. So advertising should be useful and the technology should show you the right ad because it helps you as a consumer. And that sounds really good. But if you've worked in advertising for more than 10 minutes, you know that a lot of advertising is not search. Uh, <laughs> Super Bowl ads are not search. Right? <laughs> Super Bowl ads are about driving demand, about suggesting things, about putting ideas into people's minds. And um, and so that disconnect of the West Coast Google approach of everything being automated, everything being algorithms, and uh, and business people really being at the bottom of the totem pole was not going to work if Google wanted to be a leader in video and in display. It just wasn't. And so the East Coast, New York-style double-click approach, which was still pretty tech-friendly, we understood tech, we had a lot of engineers that were very high quality, uh, but we took the business side first and said, what do the customers want? How do we make these ads more efficient? How do we make the ad serving better? Um, I think that it ultimately earned its place at the table. And to this day, a lot of Google's display business is based in New York. And a lot of the same people who were running DoubleClick in the 2000s are still at Google and have really important positions. Uh, Neil Mohan, who is my boss at DoubleClick, is now the CEO of YouTube. Mm. And I think that speaks volumes for, for how the acquisition was actually really successful, uh, both financially and culturally. Interesting. And would you say that, that, was, that those dynamics were unique to the Google organization? Or would you say that was something that's just more endemic of that cultural mindset of the, the West Coast tech first and a more business-orientated East Coast? Now, I know these are big stereotypes and we're painting with a very broad brush strokes here, but um, as somebody that uh, lived through it, would you say that's an accurate assessment or is there a bit more nuance? I think it's pretty accurate to say that folks in the Bay Area see advertising as primarily an algorithm problem, and folks on the East Coast see advertising as a creative business problem. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more from Ari Papara. Okay, well, I guess that takes us up to the late 2000s, and as we transition into the 
next decade uh, uh, and period of time that um, I think a lot of people out there describe it as programmatic eats the world or the industry and uh, time that we, we use also switch roles to companies that would be more readily identified as programmatic. Can you just uh, give us a broad overview of what was driving these changes at that time, Ari? Sure. First of all, I created the phrase programmatic eats the world in an op-ed in advertise, ad age. So okay. uh, I would like to cr take credit for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we talked about margins a little bit earlier mm -hmm. and how the ad networks had large margins. One way to look at the evolution of ad tech is to think about the margins and where they go. So when, pr when the ad networks were in full bloom, a company called Right Media grew up in here in New York. And Right Media was an ad server for ad networks. So uh, the ad networks often built their own tech. But if you had access to supply and demand and you needed an ad server to connect those, Right Media was your place to go. And that was a really small corner of the ad tech world, uh, an area that I would say most people didn't even know existed and probably wouldn't still know it existed if not for the fact that they had this massive innovation, which is that the uh, team there, led by Brian O'Kelly, had this idea that if all the ad networks were on the same ad server, they could swap their demand and supply to create benefits to everybody. Um, so this was a instance where a technology was created, the ad exchange, mm -hmm. and it created value for everyone involved. Everyone who touched this ad exchange got better because if you had a offer, let's say you were an ad network had an offer from a uh, cosmetic company that was targeting women, and on the supply side, you didn't have that many sites that targeted women, but somebody else did, you could still run that offer and you would make more money. And the person who had the supply on the women-oriented sites would make more money. Everyone made more money. This was a huge deal. And it'll, it prompted this programmatic eats the world trend, which was that everyone realized that using ad exchange technology you could create liquidity in the advertising market for the first time. And liquidity meant that buyers and sellers could be empowered to sell their inventory or buy inventory on a spot basis from anyone who you wanted to buy it from, as opposed to being locked in to direct deals that had specific budgets, specific times, et cetera. Anyway, mm -hmm. long-winded way of saying <laughs> that that innovation allowed margin to be taken back from the ad networks and brought in to either the buy side or the sell side. And it turns out the buy side took most of it. Uh, but instead of a 50% margin at an ad network who's connecting buy and sell, you could have a 10 or a 20% fee being paid to a DSP to access the same inventory that ad network was previously locking up. Um, so that transformation was so important because never in the history of the world had advertising been liquid before. Every ad in the history of the world had been bought on a, on a fixed basis, uh, meaning you bought a magazine ad and it ran for a month mm -hmm. and that was it. So bringing spot buying was this huge innovation that um, was the main reason why DoubleClick got sold to Google because DoubleClick had announced its ad exchange uh, shortly before the sale process. But it was also why Right Media got bought by Yahoo and why 24-7 got bought by WPP and why Microsoft bought Accretive for $6.1 billion. Which is a huge amount of money. There was a lot of money being spent on these companies, huge, huge uh, multiples. How much of this do you think was 
money well spent because there's probably been quite a few write downs in there. And uh, we mentioned earlier that there's not always huge, there wasn't always huge amounts of awareness as to the business models. So while there was a lot of deals being done, it looked good on the surface. How sound were a lot of these strategic decisions? Well, the programmatic market went from zero, effectively, mm -hmm. in 2007 to currently something like $30 billion around the world uh, in media. And if, if the technology providers are taking, let's say, a conservative estimate of 20% or of that $30 billion, that would mean there's $6 billion in, in fees being collected or margin being collected in this market from zero in uh, 15 years. So that's, that's a really nice business model change and a lot of opportunity there. And so instead of asking like whether the money was wasted in M&A, I would sort of ask, you know, how would companies like Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, AOL, all those companies that were leading media companies, how would they have taken advantage of this opportunity they saw in front of them? And, and so acquisitions was a big part of that. And Go the Google obviously has the track record of buying DoubleClick and then buying Invite Media and turning into the monster business that they currently enjoy. Um, and I think that that is a testament to their execution. And while, and some of the other acquisitions like Microsoft didn't work out, but they could have, they just didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned about Google buying Invite Media after they'd bought, uh, after they bought DoubleClick and also in that era, they, they bought AppMob and they wrote huge checks for these companies. And you also mentioned Ripe Media beforehand, a company that got bought by uh, by Yahoo, and then we had the Atlas ad server changed hands between uh, between Microsoft and Facebook. I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, at this time, do you think there was an inevitability that it would be big tech would come to dominate this? Because this was an era when you worked at AppNexus, and um, obviously a company that was very vocal in its ambitions to rival the the, the big tech scions that we've just mentioned. Uh, so what's, what's your take on this? Was there an, an, an inevitability about it? Well, a couple of things were inevitable. One was that the media business was going to be transformed by programmatic. Mm -hmm. And by media, I mean both the agency buying process and the publisher sales process. It was, programmatic is a more efficient way to find audiences, and it's a more efficient way to sell ads. For, so both sides had a pretty big economic incentive to make this giant switch to programmatic, uh, and that actually happened. So that was going to happen either way. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is that programmatic was going to be a highly technical problem. It is a very hard technical problem, in some ways much more difficult than the sort of financial stuff that goes on on Wall Street because the volume is so much higher. Mm -hmm. So I think there was some inevitability, and this is something that I think Brian O'Kelly saw when he founded AppNexus. There was some inevitability that programmatic was going to be a cloud business, that there would be some overlap. And, and interestingly, that probably hasn't happened as much as people thought. Um, but uh, that the fact that AppNexus is currently owned by Microsoft is sort of, you know, could have been predicted, even though it took some twists and turns for them to get there. <laughs> yes. Um, the last thing I'll point out, and I think uh, Satya Nadella uh, recently said this in court at the Google Antitrust trial, he said, advertising is actually the largest sector of the software business. I thought that was <laughs> that was interesting. So coming from Microsoft, which is, if not the largest software business in the world, maybe the top, top 
software businesses in the world, he recognizes that if you consider Google's search business to be a form of software, which I think you could argue it is, mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot larger than the operating system business and the utility business, than cloud business, than anything else. It is the largest sector of advertising, of software. Interesting. I'm sure that quote from the uh, Microsoft CEO that you just referenced was probably going to be used on um, plenty of pitch decks uh, from here on in. But um, okay, we can get to the trial that you just referenced uh, a little bit later. I'll just we can reference it very quickly. But this is also an era when a lot of the companies that we would kind of maybe more readily identify as independent ad tech started to go public. Uh, I'm talking about names such as Rocket Fuel. Uh, we had Tube Mogul, which obviously later got taken off the market by uh, Adobe. And uh, I think some of the more, let's just say, names from the sector that stead wrote out the 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 kind of the, the ride on the public markets a little bit longer also went public. I'm talking about names such as Critio, uh, Rubicon Project, now known as Magnet, of course, or Magnite, of course, sorry. Um, do you think some of those companies uh, went public a little too soon? Because there were a lot of that cohort uh, that um, didn't do so well uh, once, you know, after the initial rush of blood to the head. I think it's interesting that they were all founded in the late 2000s. So effectively, mm -hmm. the dawn of programmatic created a huge number of companies and they invest, they received a, quite a bit of venture capital investment mm -hmm. because everyone saw how big a deal the programmatic transition was going to be and how many business opportunities it arose. Uh, then the second thing I would look at is how well did those VC bets pay off? And some of them paid off incredibly well. I know some of the early investors in the trade desk and they have quite a bit of real estate they could owe to their early investment in mm. the trade desk. Um, and, you know, AppNexus ended up having an uh, exit over a billion, TripleLift had over a billion. Um, there were many exits in the three to 500 million range. Uh, so as a sector, I think the VC bets actually probably did pretty well. Um, now, public markets didn't do as well. I think it was really two companies that screwed up the public markets for the rest of mm -hmm. ad tech. It was Rocket Fuel and Tremor. And mm. they both went public uh, and had sort of brief moments of very uh, high stock prices and high flying uh, activities. And they weren't really the best companies. There were companies that had some real fatal flaws in their business model. Uh, and when they came down, they came down hard. And it probably took another three or four years for the public markets to trust ad tech again. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure it's a it's any sort of global phenomenon so much as it is a coincidence that the early companies that went public didn't do that well. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Well, I guess it's, um, you know, that period of time it's, it's comes just before uh, what we internally on the news desk is called is the sort of the privacy era where a lot of governments again started to focus on the sector not because of anti-competitive practice this time, but more because of concerns 
around privacy. For me, and I was working out of London at the time, uh, probably the big, big kind of uh, watershed moments, I guess, was the passing of GDPR in the EU in 2016. Now, it wasn't until two years later in 2018 that it became enforceable. But I think it was at that stage where a lot of the market would see is like, oh, this is going to be quite uh, quite an issue for us to wrestle with. I guess I could just, if I could just ask by you, as someone who's been in the market for such a long time, in the early days when things are just being created, how much of a conversation was there around, oh, actually, <laughs> we might have to worry about this privacy thing that, uh, you know, we've got a lot of access to people's information. Um, when did those conversations, you know, how, how common were they in those early, early days? Just to backtrack a little. Sure. If you go back into the early days, there was one watershed moment in privacy. And that was when DoubleClick, and this is before my time, when DoubleClick announced they were acquiring a company no one had heard of called Abacus. Mm-hmm. And Abacus was a data co-op of catalog and magazine companies that had real people with real addresses and real shopping behaviors. And as soon as that acquisition was announced, everyone went crazy and they thought the world was ending because DoubleClick already had this dominant position in digital advertising, but it was all anonymous. It was just cookie IDs. They had no idea what people's names were or their emails or anything like that. And the idea they were going to join this with real shopping behavior just scared the daylights out of everybody. And DoubleClick subsequently got sued by 49 attorneys generals and the federal government and the European government. And it was a massive big deal for DoubleClick as well as for the industry as a whole. Now, the ironic thing is that if you fast forward just like 10 years into the late 2000s, uh, joining people's online and offline behavior became de rigueur. Everyone does it. It's like Mm. almost you know, an afterthought. Um, but in those early days, the idea went made people crazy. And then the second big moment had nothing to do with ad tech, as many things do, which was the Edward Sto- Snowden allegations. Mm-hmm. When Edward Snowden uh, dumped all the documents showing that there was a systematic surveillance by the U.S. government on telecom, uh, it immediately raised everyone's hackles. And in particular, the European governments said, well, we can't really trust this to the free market anymore. Um, If a company like AT&T is just going to literally let the government have an office (laughs) in their data center, that's just not trustworthy. Um, And then ad tech just sort of got drug along into this various, you know, uh, press driven and politically driven um, pursuits for for privacy, and I think privacy deserves some air quotes here, uh, because there's not really many real allegations that privacy is being violated. It's the sense that privacy might be violated by various ad tech companies that has uh, made them the easiest target of all the activist governments and press. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, I suppose that takes us into the closing rounds of the conversation. Uh, I know when we were speaking about it before in the green room, Ari, you kind of said, it was like, well, what if it was all just a big mistake? <laughs> do, <laughs> do you think so? Particularly as we've got governments coming down saying sometimes like, no, you can't do that. We can't trust the private market with uh, people's information, you know, for its own devices. What's your take on that assessment, Ari? One way to look at the last 15 years and by that, I, I'm really talking about the programmatic era, mm-hmm. is that 
the number one use case for programmatic was third-party cookies. Mm -hmm. And a company like Critio grew a multi-billion dollar business entirely on third-party cookies. Companies like DSPs will not say this, but one of the driving factors of advertiser adoption was and is audience reach. So being able to reach your audience, being able to define your audience. And so in that worldview, you might say that the disappearance of third-party cookies and the focus on privacy makes the main reason why programmatic exists go away. And it becomes much more like the market was before 2008, which was publisher-driven, uh, media-driven. And you see this a little bit with the growth, growth of things like programmatic guaranteed and the ongoing conflict that's happening between DSPs and SSPs where they're trying to cut each other out of the mm. margin game. Once again, we go back to margins. Um, so from one particular point of view, you could say, well, maybe we would have been better off in 2008 investing in in tools that automated the buying and selling of media instead of moving to a spot market that was all audience-driven. Mm -hmm. Now, there are lots of people working hard to enable the audience-driven world to continue, and it's not clear if Chrome getting rid of cookies will be a death knell or a starting of a new era of creativity in that area, but there is a skeptic's point of view that I think has some validity. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, you, you you mentioned the disintermediation game, which is something that we will get into much more detail on a, on a separate episode with a, with another guest. But uh, I think it really does take us to an interesting point where you you mentioned government scrutiny in Google uh, and big tech as a whole. Uh, there, uh, as we speak, there is the government's the DOJ's case against Google and its search business. Uh, that's still ongoing as we speak. Next year in 2024, we will have um, a separate case looking at Google's ad tech stack, also from uh, the DOJ and uh, various attorneys general. In Europe, there are multiple uh, multiple uh, investigations into not just Google, but also the other big tech players such as Meta and Apple and their, their conduct in the space. Oh, I should probably also mention Amazon while we're at it. But how do you think this scrutiny of governments uh, will impact the market as we go into the middle and second half of the 2020s? Do you think it's realistic that there will be more breakups than that? We'll uh, have more competition? I'd be interested to get your, your take on this. Well, as a rule of thumb, anything that's been done to rein in advertising, such as GDPR or other privacy leg legislation or Apple's ATT, has had a specific measurable effect, which is to make the big walled garden stronger. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's going to be any different with further government intervention. Whenever the government looks at this market, they end up saying, well, it's okay to do certain activities if you have a relationship with the consumer, but if you're a third party, you're going to be reined in. And guess who's got relationships with the consumers? Meta, Google, Amazon, Snap. So I'm not very optimistic that ad tech has a great future as a robust marketplace with lots of independent players. I think it's going to continue to consolidate to the benefit of the big guys. Um, Interesting. And the only exception would be if in the second Google case in the U.S., 
that there's actually a forced divestiture of the network business, which would be a pretty interesting change of direction. Uh, and that is what the government's asking for. And if that were to happen, I think it would be sort of a, you know, a reset on a lot of activities. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, everybody, I think that, uh, is it for this episode? Ari Paparo, I'd like to say thank you very much for being so generous with your time and your insights. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say to the Digiday listeners before, uh, before we head off. No, I'm good. I think I got it all out. Thank you so much for listening to Digiday's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the Digiday podcast. Come back on Monday, December 18 for part three of our series where Seb Joseph will be talking to Joanna O'Connell about the 2010s. If you want to know even more about the disruption in the digital media space, visit digiday.com to read our oral history of ad tech. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe if you haven't already, because every Tuesday we have our regularly scheduled Digiday podcast hosted by Katie Barber and Kamika McCoy. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.